Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, hello, my friends. I am so excited that you guys are joining us for another episode of Breast Cancer Conversations. Today, we are speaking with Andrea, who is a 30-year survivor, diagnosed at the age of 23 and then again at the age of 24. She tells us her amazing story and provides so much hope. We also talk about changing surgeons, dating, breakups, and in the end, coming to terms with acceptance and self-love. Our podcast series with Andrea is made possible because of our friends and sponsors, Amona. If you're not familiar with Amona, they are incredible. They totally get us as people who've been diagnosed with breast cancer. They provide breast forms, prosthetics, they make bathing suits, they have lingerie and bras, and basically all the supplies and resources that you need after a breast surgery. So I want to give a huge shout out and send so much love and gratitude and appreciation for Amona for making our podcast series with Andrea possible. So today we're going to meet Andrea for the first time, and then she'll come back on our podcast over the next couple of weeks. And we have some really exciting topics that we're going to talk about as well. For example, all of the numerous surgeries that she has been through And then ultimately her decision to not do any further reconstruction and her personal experience with a prosthetic and a breast form. So thank you again. So thrilled to have partners at Amona. Definitely check them out. You can find them on their website, amoena.com. It sounds crazy to say it out loud that it's 30 years. So November the 1st of uh, 1991 was when I was diagnosed with breast cancer and I was 23 years old. Welcome to the conversation. You know, when you're diagnosed with cancer, you can't see past, you know, six months, maybe a year. And then when you get to that year appointment, it's like, yes, I've made it a year. Exactly. And then you get to that five-year appointment and that's like the golden appointment, you know, that five-year appointment where you think, I've made it five years, I'm home free, you know. And then as the years start to go on, it's been really impactful to me this year that I'm like, oh my goodness, it's been 30 years, you know, and I um, am so aware that, you know, not that many people get to say it's 30 years, you know, today, I think, but when I was diagnosed, most people were not able to say it's been 30 years, you know, in the world that we live in now, Thankfully, with advances in treatments, you know, a higher percentage will be able to say it's 30 years. Exactly, exactly. And so much has changed between, you know, the 90s through where we are today with oncology, breast cancer treatments. They're always coming up with new therapies and opportunities. So again, I'm just so excited to dive into this conversation because not only were you diagnosed under 30, you were in your 20s. And I'm sure our listeners are, you know, young, middle-aged, older, you know, second diagnoses, living with metastatic, really the spectrum. And so I really love to be able to highlight all of the uniqueness that we have when we've been diagnosed, how we manage, how we cope through it all, and then how we're doing today. So I know we have a lot of topics to cover, so I appreciate you taking the time. I am so happy that we're having this conversation and whatever I say, if it can help somebody, I'm happy that it can help somebody. So, you know, and if I'm offending someone, I'm really sorry. 
<laughs> it's just my words, my journey. I don't mean to offend anyone that's chosen a different path or whatever. Absolutely. It's just, um, I'm just happy to have this conversation with you. And I share that as well, too. We're not medical professionals. We are speaking from personal experiences and we're experts in our own experience. And that's why we're here. Totally. So I love totally. that. Well, Andrea, I would love for you to maybe just give like a quick intro about yourself, where you're calling in from today, maybe where you're from, because you have this fabulous accent. And yeah, we'll start there. My name is Andrea Cummins. I am um, a wife, mother, and um, fantastic human being, I think, <laughs> most days. <laughs> Sometimes not so much, but hopefully most days. Um, things that I try that I strive to do is to at least find one joyful thing each day. Mm. So regardless of how difficult life is and whatever we're facing, and we all face such you know challenging times um, through our cancer diagnosis, through living after breast cancer, just everyday life. Mm-hmm. So to try and find one joyful thing. So I try to do that. Um, I am the um, uh, West Sales Director for Amona. So I've worked for Amona for um, many years. I'm a prosthetist by trade. So I trained as a prosthetist in the UK. I made facial and body prosthesis for people that had primarily cancer. And I actually counseled people with cancer, Mm. incredibly enough, at such a young age, um, prior to my own diagnosis. And then um, obviously I'm from the UK. Uh, born and raised in um, Wales, in Cardiff. So uh, beautiful, my beautiful homeland that I love. And then I left my beautiful homeland that I love to marry my beautiful husband, who I love more. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I moved to Utah. We live just outside of Salt Lake City, um, in between Salt Lake and Park City, in a place called East Mill Creek. Here I have three sons that I miraculously had after having breast cancer, which is truly miraculous. And so, um, yes, I'm, I'm very happy with my life and all that goes on in it, all the craziness, all the good, everything, all everything. I'm thankful for everything. Even the challenges. I'm very thankful for everything. I love that attitude. And yes, all of the crazy is what makes it fun. (laughs) I'm sure. And what a beautiful way to just appreciate life, be grateful for something every single day, and really try to find that positivity and silver lining, even in the most challenging of times. I'm right there with you. I think it's so important that, um, you know, as I said, life is very busy, very hectic. There's always challenges. Um, and just because you're diagnosed with cancer doesn't mean life stops and says, oh, sorry, I'm not going to throw any other challenges at you because you've been diagnosed with cancer everything else still keeps flying at you as well. So it's so important. That positive attitude, I think, is key when you're going through cancer or any challenge. As hard as it is, I mean, you can take the time to be sad and grieve and mourn, you know, and be sad, but um, try and pick out something good each day and try and focus on one positive each day. Now, I think that helps. That certainly helped me anyway. So take us back to your early 20s. Tell us how you discovered that you had breast cancer. So I actually was 21 when I discovered a lump. I went to my doctor and he said, oh, you're too young for it to be anything other than maybe it's a hormonal something. And um, 
we'll, you know, come, we'll see you in six months or whatever. And so um, time went on, nothing happened, and they kind of forgot about me, to be honest with you. And then I was 23, and I was on holiday in Germany, actually not far from where Amona is based. Oh, okay. Amona's based in Raubling, Germany, and I find it interesting how life comes full circle. And so I was on holiday um, at Lake Chiemsee, which is just about 10, 15 minutes away from the Raubling headquarters. I was on a two-week holiday with friends, was in the shower, and I happened to find the lump again in my left breast. And every day for those two weeks, I found that lump every day. You just don't stop touching it and finding it and wondering. And then I kept thinking, well, they said that I was too young. I was 21. I'm probably still too young. Um, but working in the medical profession, I went home and, you know, my, all my friends were nurses and um, some doctors and, you know, my whole team of friends were me- all medical based. Mm-hmm. So and I didn't have a particular doctor at the time. So they advised me who I should see. And I went to see a fantastic doctor who referred me to a breast surgeon and happened to be a breast surgeon where I worked, which was quite embarrassing as I worked, <laughs> worked with a lot of these people. Oh, and I had my own list of patients. So I would see my own patients when I would make their facial prosthesis and wore a white coat like the doctors did back mm-hmm. then and um, had to take my white coat off and become the patient. And so I went to see the doctor and wait for my name to be called in the waiting room and wait like everyone else and they um, aspirated it and I knew when they aspirated it that it wasn't going to be a good news and so from there um, we went from it it all just happened so quickly from there. When you were on holiday and you discovered this lump again and it didn't seem to go away did you tell your friends when you were there or did you just keep it all inside? I kept it all to myself. I never told a soul (laughs) because you think, um, and I think about that, you know, you have friends and you wonder then, do you say something? Do you ruin their holiday? You know, that they think then, do we have to cut this holiday short? You know, do I want to spoil their, you know, enjoyment and thinking, is two weeks going to make any difference? In the grand scheme of things, no, two weeks doesn't make difference in the life of cancer. It's not going to grow, you know, to that extent in just two weeks, but in our minds and us living with it, right? And in in how we think and feel, two weeks is an eternity. (laughs) When you just keep thinking that and you keep in that little secret, you know, thinking, oh my goodness, you know, nobody knows this but me. And it was male and female on this holiday, so there's no way I was going to tell any of the boys. Of course, of course. (laughs) Yes, and then, you know, to still enjoy and have time, I I wrote a poem recently about my diagnosis. And well, similar, not similar, I was diagnosed. And that weekend after I found out the positive results from my biopsy, I was to get on a train and visit my brother who was living in New York City at the time. And I was like, how can I get on this train? How can I go visit him with this news? Like, I just got diagnosed with breast cancer. And my boyfriend is like, life doesn't stop. Like, you had plans. Nothing's going to yeah. change between, you know, Friday and Sunday. 
Like, yeah. we're not going through surgery this weekend. Like, go, go see your brother, totally. live life. And so, you know, totally. I just, I, I hear you in terms of, you know, we know something, we're not going to share it with everybody. I just remember being on that mm. train being like, does everyone know? Can they tell? Can they tell I have cancer? Totally. Totally. You totally feel like that. Like, yeah. why don't, why doesn't anybody know this? Why are they carrying on with their lives? How, how do they not know that I'm sad right now? Or this has happened to me right now. Mm-hmm. And you look around and, and it's almost like the world is in slow motion exactly. as you're looking around at people. Um, it's very interesting. Yeah. 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 And kind of that out of body experience too, right? Like we can totally. be mentally cognizant that this is happening to us, but it doesn't seem real. It's very surreal. Totally. So after my, um, after they aspirated my lump, I actually, the same day, still didn't tell anybody what was going on. I got in a car with some other friends and we drove up to Scotland to swim in the North Sea with a dolphin that had arrived in the harbour there injured and people were swimming with this dolphin out in the North Sea. He would come in and out of the harbour. Wow. And I... um, have pictures of that and my face is just so joyful that I'm in the North Sea freezing to death <laughs> but with this dolphin and this dolphin had been injured from fishers you know fishermen's nets and then the um, propeller of a, of a boat oh, had cut him so he was injured in there but he um, it was so interesting you know animals know things but he when I first jumped in the water, he came up to me and he rubbed his nose on my feet and then he rubbed across my chest area. Oh, wow. And and it was just so, um, it's just something I, I can't really explain it, the emotions and feelings of that, but it was just very powerful to be with an animal like that who seemed connected and knew what nobody else knew. <laughs> Exactly. That's, that's amazing. And I, yeah. I also resonate very much so with that. We recently got a golden retriever who's nine months old. And even though I was diagnosed a couple of years ago, I'm still like, oh my gosh, he's where he positions his head, even oh, though he's cuddling. I'm like, wait, did something metastasize? Is something not right? Is something wrong? And trying not oh. to read too much into my, my puppy's cuddly behavior. But I absolutely think they have a an innate sense of being able to comfort us. Well, I love all these travels and escapades you are taking in your twenties. <laughs> I love that. So what happens next? And so then from there, I get a phone call obviously to say, you know, we really need to do um, surgery on you mm-hmm. and um, we'll do a lumpectomy. And so um, at this point, I had then moved my job to a different hospital. So then uh, had to travel back to London to the hospital where I worked and where my surgeon was. And so I went in to, and in the UK, and especially at this time, but I think it's still the same there now. It's not like here where you have beds, you know, individual rooms. Mm. In the UK, it's a ward and you'll have, you know, maybe 12 beds in the ward where you're spaced out and across from each other. And um, this is very bizarre, but they did not have any room for me on the surgical ward. Hmm. And the only bed available was on a geriatric ward. 
Oh, and so it was full of older people, some that, um, you know, had dementia and just had their own challenges going on. And my bed was at the end of the ward in the corner. And um, anyway, I had my uh, surgery, but, you know, being in that ward and there was a lady next to me and I just kept thinking how sad that her memory had gone. She just tr- kept trying to have conversations with me thinking that I was somebody else, you know, but it was also, um, and that was a mix of emotions, like happy, sad, in that it was distracting from what I was going through to focus on somebody else and focus on, you know, this sweet lady that thought I was somebody else. Sure, sure. <laughs> kept having conversations with me that I had to play along with. And then, um, you know, to try and for me then not to be thinking about what's happening. And so, um, so anyway, so I had my lumpectomy and then when I went back for the results, come to find out that they had not removed the entire lump. Mm. And I had had a conversation with my surgeon and he had some students with him at the time and had an argument with him that I refused to sign my papers for the surgery unless they agreed to do a lumpectomy. And he kept saying, don't you realize how disfiguring it's going to be? You're only 23 and if we take this whole lump, it's going to take, you know, half of your breast and you're so young. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> you know, health is more important to me. To be alive is more important to me than my appearance. Take the whole lump. And I had signed and he had agreed. But then when I went back for the results, he said, you know, I'm sorry. This would never happen today, of course, <laughs> because, you know, in, especially in America, you would sue them, but this would never happen. But then, you know, he said, I'm sorry, you know, it is cancer. And I, I didn't take the whole lump. And at this point, we will need to go back in and do the rest of the surgery. But I had changed my job and worked at a different location in Salisbury, where Stonehenge is. Yes. As you will know, where oh. Stonehenge is, there's a hospital there that I worked in. So I had left London and I found a new breast surgeon and he was actually my boss where I worked at this new um, cancer unit. And I went, you know, explained to him what had happened. He got copies of all of my records and said, you know, Andrea, I'm so sorry. But at this point, we will need to do a mastectomy. That lump has grown and we now need to do a mastectomy. And, um, And I said, that's fine. Let's do it. So we scheduled to do a mastectomy. And then he was going to do a tram flap reconstruction at the same time. Mm. And this is very bizarre. (laughs) And I hope this is not boring everybody, but this is very bizarre. So the night before my surgery, I was at work and my surgeon's secretary called me and said, you know, Andrea, Dr. Hobby would like to see you. Something's come up about the surgery tomorrow. And I said, oh, okay. So I went over to his office and he said, there's just something that keeps nagging at me that we not do the tram flap. So I think what we need to do is do the mastectomy, put a tissue expander in. And at the time, there was a moratorium on on the implant, silicone implants here in the US. They put a moratorium on it to stop people using implants while they investigated if silicone implants were causing illness. Mm. Again, this was 30 years ago. You can research that. 
And so I said, that's fine. I'll go along with what you're saying. We'll put a tissue expander in. When the moratorium's lifted, we'll put an implant in. At the time, I think my parents, my mum particularly, was so much more upset about it than I was. And my mum was crying and I kept saying, mum, everything's fine. Now we make recovery care garments, have drain management in. There's no need for someone to pin drains into their shirts and things like that. But at the time, there was nothing like that. Mm -hmm. And in the UK, they they made this little flowered bag, almost like a little, you know, two pieces of fabric sewn together that had an opening that had a handle on it. And that you would wear that and put your drains in that, oh. tuck it in there. <laughs> so I left, you know, the hustle with my drains and my little flowery bag and leave it to the Brits to, you know, make it all like proper. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have to pin it in your blouse. But anyway, um, and I went home and recovered. And then, you know, I did the tissue expansion, mm-hmm. which was so painful, so painful. Um, I remember taking pain pills you know an hour before I'd go in to be expanded Mm -hmm. it was just very painful that um, aching pain it's very hard to describe if you haven't been through that but it's quite painful and then um, and then after a period of time they put the implant in so from the time that I was diagnosed to the time I had my implant put in it was seven months and just when we had finished everything I, I said to my surgeon, I don't know if I'm crazy, but I feel a lump on my right side. And I don't know if, if I, it's just me, is it just in my mind, but I feel something. And so he examined me. They did an ultrasound because, you know, I was too young for a, a mammogram. And he said, I think we have the exact same situation on the right side. And I think we just need to do the same thing. And I said, okay, I'm fully on board. And at this point I was 24 um, and had, you know, did the same surgery, tissue expander, implant put in. And then, um, so I was very happy with how I, you know, appearance and everything, very happy with everything. And then after that point was when I met my husband I was just about to ask you, were you dating at the time? You were in your early 20s. So can you talk a little bit about relationships? I had dated, you know, on and off. Had a boyfriend at the time that I was diagnosed, but nothing serious. And um, actually ended all of that because this is for people out there in relationships. This person that I was dating at the time thought that my diagnosis and my journey was his journey. Mm. And that he, you know, all the things that he had to deal with and that he said to me, you know, um, this is awful to say this out loud, but he said to me, no one will want you. No one will want to be with you. So I suppose I will be with you. Like he was sacrificing himself for me type of thing, you know, which is all kinds of wrong. Okay. So, um, so obviously you can imagine that I ended up pretty <laughs> Rightly quickly so. and told him where to go with no uncertainty. Oh my goodness. <laughs> things not to say to somebody diagnosed with breast cancer. Totally, totally. So my my point for anybody that's going through surgery, going through breast cancer, that if you're in a relationship that happens to end whilst you're in this journey, it is not your fault. And it is not because of your cancer and it is not because of your appearance. 
It is purely because of that person. And there were issues there all along that then were shown at the point of this challenge, at the point of something serious happening in your life. It kind of sifts out the the good from the bad, you know, the weak from the strong. It sifts out who really needs to be with you. And true colors. You know, clearly that person never needed to be with me. So um, so for ladies out there, I totally understand. And, you know, you are a beautiful person and they do not need to be with you. Exactly. And if I, you know, I could have been the last woman, you know, who he could have been the last person on the planet and I would not have wanted to be with that person. And if I was single for the rest of my life, it would have been totally fine. I'm very incredibly blessed to have found the person that I am married to, that we've been married for 28 years and um, and that he loves me for me and has always loved me for me. It has nothing to do with, you know, appearance or, you know. Exactly. exactly. Just does, that should never come into it, you know. And in the moment, so, that is so hard because I think when we're going through surgery and this, you know, to, to, to use some of those words, right? Like we're going to feel disfigured. We're losing part of our sexuality. Totally. There's so much to totally. go into. And it does show people's true colors and also their weakness and how quickly people want to turn it and make it about them when it's your decision, your choice. And absolutely, like, let them go because there will be more positivity and better people on the way to surround yourself with. Can you share any advice for our listeners about how to have conversations with a partner? When do you disclose that you have been diagnosed with breast cancer? When do you disclose the type of surgeries you've had, et cetera? What can, what advice do you have? It's, it's a, it's a hard conversation, you know, and um, I'm a very confident person. I've always been a very confident person, um, but it's still a difficult conversation to have with that person. And, and because of my experience, um, you know, previously, it's hard then to think, okay, who am I going to share this information with? And for me, again, hugely thankful and hugely blessed that I met my husband was the next person that I did meet. And, um, and that conversation for me happened at the very beginning. Um, it was it was one of the first conversations that we had that, okay, look, you know, this is what's happened to me. Um, and um, and I I was quite rude to my husband at the time, actually, and said, I don't I don't want your sympathy. I don't want you feeling sorry for me. And he said, um, you know, I, I, I don't feel sorry for you. I'm sorry this has happened to you. So he was like the golden his golden answers, you know. <laughs> Of, I'm sorry this has happened to you. I'm not, you know, I don't feel sorry for you, but um, you know, that's that's not who you are, and that's not important to me. Now, you know, you may be a young person and you've just started to date somebody, and it might not be comfortable for you to have that as a first conversation. You know, you may want to go on a couple of dates and see where it's going to go before you have that conversation. You know, for me, this was 20 nine years ago that I had that conversation with my husband. Um, and it's a, it was a different world then than it is now, you know, everybody's online dating and, um, you know, you go on these first dates and you're dating multiple people, you know, first time. So it's probably not the conversation that you want that person to know. If it's not somebody that you think that you're going to spend a lot of time with or that you're, 
you know, so you might not want to have that as an initial conversation, get to know the person and then, you know, introduce it. And it might be, you know, third, fourth, fifth date where you then introduce that topic. And it depends where you are, you know, in your sexuality and in that part of the relationship as well. Obviously, that conversation has to happen before that happens, you know, (laughs) surprise. Um, So, but, you know, so it depends you know, where you are in that for your relationship, you know, if you're a sexually active person and that's going to occur in the first, you know, couple of dates, then it's a conversation that has to happen, you know, fairly quickly. But if you're someone that will wait to have, you know, I would suggest that you wait to see who that person is. Is that a person that you want to share that information with? I personally, um, you know, it's it's a very intimate conversation. It's a very important part of you. It does not define you, doesn't define you. You're a very beautiful person as you are in whatever that looks like for you and and have that conversation when it feels right for you would be what I would say to somebody. Amazing. Such words of wisdom. Are there any remaining last thoughts or comments you'd like to leave for today? There's so much when you're when you're going through your own journey of of breast cancer or any cancer, it's a lot of energy, you know, it's exhausting. And um, it's not selfish to focus on self-care, self-love, self-appreciation, and to um, you know, take that time and energy for yourself so that you can truly heal. I totally agree. Andrea, it was amazing to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. You are so welcome. It was such a joy to spend this time with you. And thank you all for listening and tuning in week after week here on Breast Cancer Conversations. Please be mindful that all of our content and information is for educational purposes only and is never a substitute for medical advice. If you want to hang out again, please check out survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events, where you can RSVP to our Thursday Night Thrivers weekly meetup, our Movement Monday classes, workshops, seminars, and so much more. We can also continue the dialogue online via social media. Our Instagram handle is survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, and you can follow us on Twitter at SBC underscore ORG. Until next time, keep on thriving.